Okay, hi. Special night. Special, special night. And so I'm happy to be here. We are actually happy to be here. Um, this is our evening for Refuges and Precepts, uh, the ceremony. And so I'd just like to take a moment to see if there's anyone here, maybe online or um, uh, in, the, in the hall here, to see if anyone is new to Sims. This is your first time coming. Well, hi, welcome. That's pretty courage, you know, to come on this night, you know, and don't know anyone. So we really appreciate you being here. We're happy um, for practice. I don't see any hands online. So, oh, I see one there, there. Yeah, well, same to you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we love ceremony here at Seattle Insight, and so we uh, enjoy doing it. And, and uh, as usual, this will be a special night. Uh, my name is Tuere Salah. I'm one of the guiding teachers here. Tim Guile is here, and uh, as with uh, Carrie Peterson. So we are all the main teachers here at Seattle Insight. And um, we are just, uh, I don't know, just overwhelmed. So I always get very excited when ceremonies are about to start. So good thing we're going to start with a meditation. <laughs> so I can kind of settle down a little bit. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to meditate, not for our usual 40 minutes, for a much shorter time, given the ceremony that we're going to do. Um, and then... Uh, um, let's see. I'll just talk about that when we get finished with the meditation and get ready for the break. All right, so I'll do a little bit of guidance just to help us uh, settle a bit. And uh, if you don't need it, just ignore it. It's just sound anyway. And so just go about your practice the way you would normally practice. And for those of you that appreciate it, then it'll help you settle a little bit also. Let us begin by just noticing the external conditions that we happen to find ourselves in right now. External conditions are always here. So at any moment in time, you can just adjust to external conditions. You can notice it. So here in the hall, we might be noticing the sounds outside might be noticing the felt sense of people around. You can feel the chair that you're actually sitting in or the cushion you're sitting on. Temperature in the room. And if you're at home online, you can notice maybe same thing, sounds, the room, the space you're in. You can notice the temperature in your room and the presence or absence of people. Just bringing your attention to this external experience that's happening that has nothing to do with you, but you can be aware of it. And it's the present, the felt sense of being in this present moment with these external conditions. 
when you feel like you have arrived in this place with these external conditions, you can let your attention go to the lower half of the body and just feel the heaviness of the body itself here in this moment. You might notice the weight of your legs from the underside, as Philip Moffat would say. The heaviness of the arms from the back of the arms. You can notice the heaviness of the body from the weight that you feel from the back. And you can get a sense that the body is sitting on something. And you can let it rest on that cushion chair. Just kind of like a preliminary, just orienting into the room, arriving here in the room softening into the body in its heaviness. You can notice the hardness of the bone, bones in the feet, on the floor, bones in the legs, the sit bones bones in the back and the arms, fingers, shoulders, head, and neck. There's so many bones in the body. And even through the soft tissue of flesh and skin, you can still feel the hardness of bone. You can feel the hardness of the bones, your sit bones, and the bones on the floor with your feet and your thighs. To see if you can get a sense of hardness, heaviness. These are earth qualities. And it helps us solidify a sense of groundedness stillness, relative stillness, and a sense of this moment. And then finally we open up to an anchor, an object to hold on to for our med meditation, for steadiness. Can be the breath in the body. In the nose and the chest or the belly. You can just watch the breath. Notice when the mind is steady on the breath. Notice when the mind is off and distracted.
We have a lot of sound here in the hall, so you can notice sound. How it's constantly moving, changing, appearing. So you could let the sound anchor you. Or you could just let the body sitting here anchor you. Without sense of sitting. This is your anchor. And throughout the sit, you may get lost in thought and the mind wanders, but this anchor, the breath, body breathing, body sitting, sounds arising, it is always here. You can attune to it in the background and bring it in the foreground. So even if you notice the mind thinking, see if you can, without letting go of the thinking, just see, can I find my anchor? Can I still feel the body sitting? Can I still feel the body breathing? Can I still hear sound? And then you can gradually bring that anchor forward again. So we'll sit the rest of the sit in quiet. And trust this as practice. So whatever arises, it's all practice. There's no wrong way, right way. Just this willingness to practice bringing the anchor forward again.
a pine needle in a sea of trees. Timeless serenity in this very moment. A pine needle lying in a stone garden. Timeless serenity in this very moment. A pine needle flying through a stormy wind. Timeless serenity in this very moment. We are all kind of like that pine needle. We don't always know how or what the circumstances of our lives will bring us. We just kind of live with it, with whatever arises as best we can. And ceremonies like we're going to do today remind us how to begin again, to begin again. That's all we ever do. We get lost and then we begin again. This is a ceremony that Seattle Insight has been doing since its inception. So for, I guess, over 25, 30 years. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember how long we've been around, but it might even be leaning into the 40 years. Um, and here every year we come together as a Sangha and um, take up the refuges and precepts as practitioners to frame our life around. So I'll give you a little rundown of what we're going to do. So we will not be taking a break after this meditation. Um, Tim and Carrie are each going to give a a uh, short talk about the refuges. Uh, I think Tim does the refuges and Carrie will do the precepts. And then we'll take a break. Right? And then um, and then we will have our ceremony. And so for those of you at home, when we take the break, you'll want to make sure you get a cord or some kind of string that you can participate here in the ceremony. Um, and then we'll do our ceremony and uh, uh, maybe have some reflections on the teachings that we're going to do this year. Very excited.
about the paramis. And so, and then that'll pretty much be our evening. All right. Have some closing announcements and that'll be it. So nice and sweet. Um, and I guess I'll turn it over to Tim because uh, it's your turn. <laughs> All right. Good evening. Nice to see each one of you. All the new familiar faces and old faces and everyone in between. And it was online also. We have 55 people online, 54 or so with the um, people here. So nice to see everyone. Happy New Year. So I was going to share a few words about the paramis. I'm sorry, not the, I will share about the paramis, but talk about the refuges first here. So the three refuges of the Buddha, of the Dharma, and the Sangha, we'll be chanting those in a little bit, but just share some reflections on, on how we can engage. So the Buddha, we can hold him as a human being who discovered this path of awakening through his own diligence, his own perseverance to see through his delusion. The Dharma is what he laid out, his pathway, his teachings, the whole practice that we practice today. And the Sangha is all the people who've practiced these last 2,600 years, people here in this room, people across the world right now, who help hold this sense of community, this like-mindedness. Now, these three refuges, I was reflecting on this talk that often when someone's going through a difficult time in their practice, they often say these words. They say, I'm so thankful for the practice. The practice has really been a refuge for me. It's helped me navigate this difficult, challenging time. And so I want to share a few thoughts from my own perspective of how that works, how these three aspects really become a refuge in difficult times. First, it's just connecting with the present moment to actually connect with what's actually here. The basis of a meditation practice, of feeling the breath, the body, opening to sound. Because often when we're struggling in with some life circumstances, something in our, in our world, we lose that contact. We go into the thoughts, the future, the, the worry, the uncertainty. We go into the past and all the, the remorse and regret from that. We're often struggling with, with uh, loss and certainty, emotions of grief and anger. Fear kind of sweep us off our feet. We get lost in this whole maelstrom of, of thoughts and our emotions, our panic. And in these times, thoughts really don't seem to be our refuge. They tend to actually amplify what's going on, amplify our reactivity. And this is just a simple, elegant practice of connecting with what's here right now, as Twery guided us in the meditation, connecting with some aspect of our senses, connecting something like the body, the breath, sound. It helps to orient us and realign us to what this present moment is actually holding, what's actually here in this moment. Sometimes we have to find the right entry point, you know, what's maybe the body creates a, creates a sense of unease, so we find sound. But once we find that, that anchoring point, it really affects our physiology. I think we all know this who've gone through difficult life circumstances. 
take a few breaths, connect with the body, feel the feet. We can actually feel our heart rate start to slow down. We can feel our breathing start to deepen. Our vision becomes clearer. It helps us move out of that place of reactivity, that place of panic. It helps us to, to really become collected. And in that collection, in that sense of orienting, we start to be able to see, perceive, understand in a more clear way what's actually in front of us. We can navigate these, these difficult circumstances. It allows us to see through our preconceptions, our ideas of how things should be or wish we were, to actually see how they are, to see what are the other possibilities are. So it becomes this bedrock for creativity, a springboard for creativity that aren't so accessible when we're lost in the past or the future. So this first aspect, just that simple grounding into the present moment that just can take a few moments to reorient, to reconnect. Second, having a framework to understand our suffering is a refuge that the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha provides. To understand the nature of why we create suffering, how we experience suffering in our lives. Start to understand these habit patterns, these patterns of reactivity, these patterns of of selfing, which create our struggle. And so connecting to the present moment allows us to start to learn from them, to understand the nature of them, the habit patterns, this conditioning that tends to perpetuate our suffering. There's multiple layers and levels that that works upon, right? We can see it from an interpersonal or a psychological or group dynamics. And there's, of course, a much deeper level of how we create that sense of self, that self that perpetuates suffering, the suffering self. We start to understand the nature of that. And this is a refuge, because when we're lost in some struggle in our lives to understand so much of, so much of that is kind of self-induced, is self-created from us not perceiving how things actually are that we have these assumptions of how we should be, how the world should be, and learning to connect with the present moment, to actually ground with what's actually here right now, starts to allow us to see that framework of suffering, to understand the nature of dukkha. And then third, finally, there's the potential for that release of that struggle, the release of our contraction of our heart, our contraction of identification. This potential for opening to liberation, to really free this this heart from its conditioning, from its self-inflicted prison. And this becomes the refuge of release in the midst of struggle and difficulty, especially if we have a taste of that, when we've known that in our lives, we realize that that potential is here right now. Even though it seems so far removed, and so hard to access, we start to have the faith that it's there. That's this refuge. Okay, people have practiced in this way for centuries. People have had their own struggles and have been able to find their way through that. They've been able to actually use their struggles as a way to awaken, to understand in a more deep way the nature of their suffering and the release of that. 
we see how we can start to release the habit pattern. Don't have to keep following that pattern of contraction. We start to have a deeper sense of this potential of who we really are when that, that suffering self starts to be seen through, when it starts to fall away. So in the midst of a difficult time, a difficult experience, we can recall the Buddha's own path. His own path as a human being going through his own patterns of suffering and struggle. And how he discovered awakening. He discovered a way to release that contraction of heart. His teachings that mapped it out. All the people who've practiced, all the people who've elaborated and expanded upon his teachings. All working to understand this nature of who we are, of what we really are. To understand the nature of our suffering and working to release that liberation. This is a profound refuge. So in these ways and many others, our practice becomes a refuge when things are difficult, when things aren't going our way, when things are a place of struggle. We start to realize that those very times of struggle actually become a way that we deepen our practice. We actually learn that those struggle times show us aspects and potential qualities of our practice that really don't show up until we really need them, until we really need to know how to breathe through that intense fear, how to breathe through that deep grief. You start to see the tremendous benefit of our practice. And it's helpful to have a practice that's already strong and established before difficulty arises. So that's something that I think it's, it's, it's this time of year, it's, it's a nice time to begin again to refresh our commitment to practice. But having that daily practice, that engagement with Sangha, that way to deepen your practice through study, through retreats, all that becomes this foundation that you can rely on when things become difficult in our life. In this way, we start to really understand that refuge is not just some words that we speak. It's really an act that we do every day. Every day that we practice, every day that we learn to see life through a Dharma lens is taking refuge. Taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. Right, thank you. Tim just told me I have no control over the mic. <laughs> so this is probably a good thing. Uh, so first of all, just wanted to say it's really good to be here and good to see everybody. Um, I'm here often for under 40, uh, but I know many of you, and uh, it's just nice to... Um, be with Tim and Twery together and uh, be with so many of you in the flesh and also online. So my vision is failing, but I can uh, make out lots of faces. Uh, some I recognize uh, and some I don't, but I hope you get a sense. Um, often I encourage people or in the room, you know, to glance, glance up every now and again, just so we can remember that even though we're in two places, we're, we're a shared sangha, we're, we're practicing together. 
Um, and I wanted to just say a little bit about the precepts. So our ceremony tonight will, as many of you know, will take the refuges and the precepts all together um, as a community. And for many of us, we have been doing this for years. And there's a lot of uh, repetition. Maybe some of you have noticed in these things. A lot of things happen in threes. A lot of things uh, we do again and again and again. Uh, and this is a good thing. Sometimes we can think if we've heard something before, oh yeah, I've got this. I've heard this before. I know this. Uh, but there's a real intelligence to this kind of repetition. Right? We remember over and over again. We remember. We remind ourselves and remember. Ah, yes, refuge is possible. It is possible to actually rest back. Yeah to let my worrying mind rest back in something wider, yeah. in awareness, in the path, in the community. Um, and it also is powerful to uh, refresh our commitments again and again and again. Right? Uh, so these precepts, uh, are often taken at the beginning with the refuges, at the beginning of periods of practice. So often at the beginning of a retreat, some people take them at the beginning of the day, uh, take them at the beginning of the year. And it was, as Tim was mentioning, when we do this, uh, and this is part of the ritual element also, we join with a whole wider community of practitioners who are oriented around this particular uh, sense of refuge, this gesture of refuge, but are also oriented around a commitment to non-harming. So this is is a powerful commitment, and uh, it's relatively easy to talk about but quite challenging to uh, live out in the nitty-gritty in the day-to-day, right? So many of us these days with uh, a world on fire, a planet on fire, lots of violence, uh, lots of heartbreak, um, are repeatedly asking ourselves, what can I do? What can I do? So the refuges and precepts are wonderful, powerful, potent uh, gestures for starting to respond uh, from a different place. Um, So I'll I'll just speak a little bit uh, more specifically about these, and then we'll take them together. So we can each reflect on them in our own way, but there is something powerful about Uh, hearing one another's voices um, and those at home, even if you can't hear (laughs) uh, um, or feel your voice amongst many voices, I hope you'll uh, be inspired to say them out loud because there's something powerful about that. Um, The precepts for those of you who aren't familiar uh, the language is that we're using 
tonight is knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. I undertake the training to refrain from, and then there are five precepts, Um, so to refrain from taking life, intentionally taking the life of another sentient being, another creature. Um, Undertaking the training to refrain from taking that which isn't given. So uh, taking the property of others, uh, taking what hasn't been uh, offered. Um, Undertaking the training to refrain from misusing our sexuality. Undertaking the training to refrain from harmful speech. And undertaking the training to refrain from uh, taking intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. So the sheets that we printed out, that those of you online will be able to see, um, have these classic traditional five precepts But that first line is quite important. Uh, Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. So one way to think about the precepts, to feel our way into the precepts, is to think about what kind of community uh, you want to be a part of. In what circumstances do you feel Uh, a sense of safety, a sense of ease, sense that I can let down some of that armor that I put on, you know, just to get through a day. What are the qualities of those those, uh, communities or those gatherings? Um, It's this commitment to the precepts that um, collectively allow us to kind of take... Uh, let some of our our layers and defensiveness relax so that we can practice. We likely won't feel completely, uh, always feel completely safe, completely at ease, Uh, but we can give one another what's called, uh, they call in the teachings, the gift of fearlessness. The precepts are said to be gifts of fearlessness. So uh, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful experience to be in the presence of somebody who you deeply trust, will not try to manipulate you, will not attack you, uh, will not um, condemn or berate you. Uh, there's a feeling of there can be a feeling of uh, ease and mutual respect, an absence of fear. So this is a real gift that we can give one another. Um, It's also an important aspect of wise intention. So on the eightfold path, the second fold arising out of wise view is wise intention, our commitment to wise intention. So we can hold an inquiry like, um, what does it mean to put non-harming 
at the center of my life or at the center of this day or at the center of this interaction? What does that, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? So these are not commandments. These are not thou shalt nots. These are not uh, things to, it's not like a diet (laughs) that we swear to abstain in order to uh, not get punished. So Mary Oliver uh, famously said, you do not have to be good. (laughs) Sometimes when we hear lists like the precepts, we have to remind, you do not have to be good. You don't have to strain to make yourself good. You do not have to walk a hundred miles through the desert repenting. So uh, these are meant to be held as a life-giving intention. So that uh, rather than acting compulsively, reflexively, uh, we give ourselves the chance to pause, to refrain, and to actually choose how we want to show up with one another. Yeah. So this is the power of intentionality. Yeah. Um, wonderful story, uh, Sharon Salzberg, I've heard tell many times, Uh, I think quoting from um, an article she read about uh, elementary school kids learning mindfulness um, at school when mindfulness was starting to be uh, integrated into schools in the Bay Area. And at the end of this period, this fifth grader was asked, what does mindfulness mean to you? What What does the practice of mindful awareness mean to you? And the fifth grader said, mindfulness means I don't have to hit somebody in the face. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, there is a strong natural ethical component when we're practicing uh, our sensitivity to the effects of our actions body, speech, and mind, we will naturally become more sensitive. Um, So it allows this pause moment between someone hits me, I hit them back. Someone insults me, I insult them back. Someone uh, criticizes me, I devolve into shame and contractedness. Whatever our default pattern is, Uh, This practice of um, wise intention, um, having the intent to hold non-harming at the center, both refraining and cultivating. Refraining from uh, the usual compulsive behavior and really intending what is for my long-term well-being and that of others. So the precepts are not meant just to benefit others. They're also meant to benefit us in a very deep and profound way. Right? They're meant to be kind of protectors, but also uh, nourishers for our own heart and mind. 
They are ways of making peace, not just outwardly, but inwardly. When I refrain from that usual action, what arises next? I think Tim said uh, this um, array of creative potential, new possibilities. Um, Also, we get a taste of our own goodness when we uh, are able to pause and refrain. We get a real taste of our own goodness. It's there in all of us. But some of us don't trust it or don't don't have real sustained uh, experiences of it. The last thing I want to mention about the precepts is that they uh, are trainings, right? We're not meant to expect perfection of ourselves. We will mess up. We will have the best intentions. Uh, We'll bring all of our resources and strengths to bear, and we will uh, step in it sometimes, right? We will mess up. So uh, there's... um, no, uh, it can often be more powerful to go back and acknowledge uh, where it is that we may have overstepped, come out of alignment, um, said or done something that's not in keeping with our intention. Right? Sometimes more powerful to make that repair. Right. So, The last line in each of these precepts, so we won't chant this part, but we'll speak it. So, for instance, refraining from taking that which is not given, I also vow to cultivate generosity. So we'll talk about this when we get to the the paramis, the teaching themes for this year. Uh, But just to know that each of these precepts, there's a refraining aspect which is very powerful, it's not passive, but there's also a stepping forward aspect. Your participation, your uh, coming forward matters as much as your refraining. Both of those gestures are important. Some of us need, in some areas, a lot more encouragement towards the refraining some of us need more encouragement to the coming forward and risking and uh, actively uh, participating and cultivating. So again, these are not uh, small endeavors. You could take one precept and make it the study or the inquiry of a whole lifetime. Right? And what if we did? <laughs> it would be... It would be uh, would create quite a bit of change uh, in this in this world on fire. So I just invite you to uh, reflect on the precepts in your own way. Hopefully, some of this has has given you a little bit of um, inspiration or uh, oh, food for your own your own reflection but to make them, make them your own and not be afraid of 
the repetition and to treat them as a training and a practice, uh, not an expectation of perfection. Okay, so we'll have a, uh, a short break now and now is a good time uh, for those in the room to pick up a protection cord and a chanting sheet. And for those at home, um, I hope you got the, the message ahead of time that some yarn or string or I see some of you holding it up. Great. Great. If you don't have anything, you can take an object nearby that has some meaning for you and use that as kind of a placeholder until you, you have a, a string. So Twery will talk a little bit more about the nuts and the bolts of the ceremony when we come back. Uh, but just a little break now since we've been sitting for some time. So um, for those of you that don't have a sheet, we're going to have the sheets actually put up on us on the screen so you'll be able to see. And people online will be able to see. And while Ken is rapidly doing that, I am going to talk a little bit about our ceremony. Because um, as uh, Carrie was pointing to, this is quite, it is, significant to choose to live your life in a non-harming way and to, to choose to live your life in a way that doesn't just further greed hatred and delusion is very different than the way the world lives it's not that one is better or worse because i i look at some people who are greedy with a lot of stuff and i like, well, maybe that's not quite such a bad way to go. I might watch over that stuff too. And I can remember being very averse in the world and getting my way. A lot of times my uh, fierce kind of aversion is what uh, got me what I needed to get, what I needed to uh, have in the world. So I'm not... It's, so, so if you make a judgment on one way or the other, um, then you're like actually continuing into the delusion. But instead, what Carrie was pointing to is that we are sort of making this intention to move in this fearless way so that no one need fear us when we come around. But if you're anything like me, I kind of messed up, like, I don't know, last month when I was at the retreat. I did this huge stafu, you know. So it's not like just because I don't want to cause harm, I don't. And that is the beauty of what we're undertaking in a ceremony, is we're undertaking this willingness to go through this trial and error of beginning to see into, do we really want to live in a nonviolent way? Do we really want to live in this non-harming way? And you have to choose that. So many of you know I took uh, lifetime vows with uh, Bhante Buddha Rikita. And when I saw him recently, 
he 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 and I taught this retreat together, the part two of the three month. And when I saw him, we, at the end of the retreat, we had our practice meeting together, and I was kind of worried about actually saying to him some of those vows I haven't quite kept them the way we thought about them when I took them. So like one of the vows I took was not to engage in a lot of entertainment. And that's a big vow for someone that's addicted to TV. And so I, but I figured I could do it. And then the, I took it in March of 2020 and then the pandemic happened and all our, all my hopes and things went out the window. So I went to Bonte and I was, I was so, I did not want to tell him that I was, you know, kind of back to my old ways of watching TV. I didn't want to tell him. I wanted to, I wanted to present myself like I, I got everything together and there's no problem. I got the bows down pat. But I didn't. I told him that I was struggling with TV this non-entertainment, he started laughing at me. He goes, Tori, you're not monastic. So stop trying to pretend to be monastic. You are not a monastic. We are not monastics. And it's this, he helped me realize I have to remind myself that even though we're taking vows, we are not taking monastic vows. So what he said was, Watch how you watch TV. Are you using the TV to avoid doing something else? Now that is a problem. But if you're watching TV because you just want to settle the mind, you want to watch this show and you're enjoying it, that's what, that's nothing. That's just human life. And so I, 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 I love the way he, he, um, opens this door so that the whole point of these vows is to actually practice what you think refraining from this non-harm means. What does that mean? And the only way you'll know is in some given moment, watching your behavior and seeing, are you being, uh, the, are you doing the least amount of harm? Are you actually paying attention to how much harm is being caused by you? And how much harm are you causing yourself uh, in the way that you're behaving? These are ways that we look into this. So these, the ceremony we're doing, we're entering into the ceremony, we're making this commitment to, uh, to practice with these vows. The words we're saying, we're making a commitment to practice with it throughout the year. This is kind of the framing of it, of the why we do it in this ceremony. And a couple of things about the string. So this is sometimes called a protection cord because we're gonna put in the cord our willingness to take refuge and the protection that Tim was talking about uh, of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, beginning to see, not because I tell you or Tim or Carrie, not because we say that the Buddha offers a protection, but because you begin to see 
that you can find your way uh, through difficult times or even when you're very, very happy and you want to hold that happiness, you don't want to stumble into poo-pooing it because you're afraid it'll go away quick. So you really want to hold this happiness. How do you take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha to help you hold on to that joy or that happiness or whatever good thing is happening to us? So we we use this uh, string, and I'm going to read a poem here by William Stratford, um, one of my favorite poems, to help me remember why we're using this. So one is it's called a protection cord. One is called a blessing cord. Uh, and usually it's a blessing cord when monastics uh, give them out or uh, you can go to certain events at the monastery and they will give them out. They bless the string and then they will give them out to people as a form of passing a blessing to you. Um, so this is what William Stratford says. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing and you have to explain the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold on to it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You just don't ever let go of the thread. And in a way, that's what we're stepping into here as part of our practice. We're, we're taking on the ceremony to, to take on this thread and not let go. Just not let go of the thread itself. So the, the last way that I want to frame this uh, thread, though, what I think probably speaks the most to me is that it said that... Um, this thread represents a thread of a monastic's robe. So we don't have robes. How am I going to necessarily uh, think about, am I watching TV to avoid something? How do I see that? And these threads are a way, it's like taking one of the threads of a robe and we use that thread to remind us how to stay within the practice. Because when we go out in the world, it's very, it can get very hard to see since no one really understands that and no one's necessarily living by that. And we're not all together sharing in our non-harmness. Uh, when we get out in the world, it can be hard to remember this thread. And so we, we do this ceremony and tie it to the refuges and precepts in order for us to remember. So we're going to tie um, um, three knots into this thread. And the first knot you're going to tie is this willingness to take refuge uh, in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. However you perceive the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, that you, as a practitioner, will go to this as protection when 
when you need strength or when it's dark or when you are happy and elated and you want to maintain it. So you tie your first string, your first knot into uh, this willingness to take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. I like that Tim got these long, long, <laughs> usually they were like <laughs> All right, you got it? All right, so now we're going to tie a second knot. And the second knot is this willingness to take on these precepts, to practice with them. Not uh, to be perfect, not to be right, but to practice this willingness to uh, consider, am I living within the precepts? Just throughout the day, all right? So take the, tie the second knot for the, pref uh, this willingness for the uh, precepts. All right. And then this third knot, I want you to think of an aspiration you have for the year. Can be uh, within the Dhamma's Eightfold Path, the aspirations are to do no harm or to just be, live a, you know, fearless life. And, uh, or to be kind live in goodwill, or to live with some degree of renunciation. But your aspiration can be anything. It could be to just cultivate more kindness, cultivate the Brahma-viharas. It could be just to stay with the practice, attend Sangha as often as you can. You know, whatever it is, whatever your aspiration is, you put that third knot there. All right, so now we have these three knots. This is our practice. You can take the string and put it together and we'll say the precepts and the refuges. Are we ready? Good. So Ken is going to uh, share the screen there so that people that don't have the sheet can see it. Um... And just, just uh, except for the Namo Tassa, we are going to say the Pali and the English. So even if you don't want to say it in Pali, you can just say it in English. But we will say Pali, English, Pali, English, Pali, English, and do the same for the refuges. All right, so... Uh, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami To the Buddha, I go for refuge. To the Dhamma, I go for refuge. To the Sangha, I go for refuge. 
Dutiampi putam saranam gachami Dutiampi damam saranam gachami Dutiampi sangam saranam gachami For the second time to go to the for refuge for the second time to the Dhamma I go for refuge for the second time to the Sangha I go for refuge Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami for the third time, to the Buddha I go for refuge. For the third time, to the Dhamma I go for refuge. For the third time, to the Sangha I go for refuge. Now we'll move to the precepts. Panati pata veramani sikapadam samadhyami Understanding how intertwined we are, I undertake the training to refrain from killing. I vow to cultivate compassion towards all beings. Adinadana veramani sikapadam samadhyami Understanding how intertwined we are, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I vow to practice generosity. Kame sumichachara veramani sikapadam samadhyami. Understanding how intertwined we are, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual harm. I vow to cultivate responsibility. Wait for the next slide. Musawada veramani sikapadam samadhyami. Understanding how intertwined we are. I undertake the training to refrain from harmful speech. I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening. Sira Maria Majapamatatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Understanding how intertwined we are. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxication, which leads to carelessness. I vow to consume items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So now if you will turn to someone close to you and, and if you need some help to have this put on, you can have them help you tie it on your wrist. For those of you that are at home, if you don't have someone there or if the string is long enough, you can tie it on your neck or your ankle. 
you can uh, hold on to it and when your partner comes around or a friend comes over, you can have them tie it on. I'll tell you this, uh, these, these uh, cords are, technically we just wear them until they fall off. But uh, I don't know what's up with the yarn nowadays. They, uh, they don't fall off. They just stay forever. You just keep putting more and more on. So you can get rid of last year's if you want, or you can just add it on. and It's up to you. I just walk around with a lot of string on, and people are always like, is that your jewelry? Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. All right. So we good? Great. Good. So I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the teaching theme this year. That we're going to come up with um, that we we're going to do the paramis and for those of you that don't know the paramis each of us are going to kind of describe it a little bit and talk about it a little bit and uh shouldn't be too long but um the paramis to me is the grounding that we have in practice meaning that um we all if you're i'm just assuming you're a lot like me and we get pretty grumbly most of the time so sometimes we are nice and friendly and kind but mostly there's a edginess to us a grumbling kind of energy that is tense and resistant and not very open and soft soft uh warm is not necessarily the way I would call myself. So there's a, it's just human, it's human nature. It's because our minds are oriented towards threats and it's oriented towards protecting us from threats. So it's always on high alert, looking for threats and what do I need to do to protect myself? And that kind of energy um, in the ordinary mind uh, dominates pretty much how we move through the world. But we don't have to move through the world that way. We can move through the world in a softer, uh, more open-hearted, uh, freer way and not become doormats for anyone's harm and not become the weakling that our ordinary mind perceives. In fact, some of the strongest people I know are extremely kind. I know some monastics that are so gentle and yet they are very, 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 very fierce in what they uh, can face and deal with. And so there's a, um, there's a way that our ordinary sense of what a soft, open-hearted being, human being looks like is distorted from our ordinary mind's understanding. So we need some kind of a practice that begins to help us uh, see through this veil of uh, distrust towards uh, softness and open-heartedness. And this is what I think the paramis do. Because to awaken, we need to be in a softer place, softer, kinder place, more open, 
more willing to trust the unknown. Uh, because none of us here have awakened. There's no way to, to know. I wish I could tell you. I wish somebody had told me. Then I would know what to do. But there's no way to tell anyone how to awaken other than the Buddha pointing the direction of how to awaken. So every single one of us on our path towards this greater liberation are going to have to figure it out on our own. We're going to have to figure it out moment by moment by moment by moment what it means to be awakened and what it means to live in the world with an open heart. And that capacity to allow us to do that to me are the paramis. They are the qualities of uh, a human mind body conditioning that allows for us to move in unknown territory that allows for us to be able to be in um, a difficult moment or some stressful moment or some moment of resistance and have the willingness to consider relaxing this because that's not the natural thought of the mind this threat matrix mind is how do I tighten up to make sure this goes the way I want and I get more control so this practice of the paramis is um, about learning how to open up in any given moment towards um, the possibility that there may be something here or something you can perceive that you can't see right now, that you don't know that you don't know because you can't see it. And the paramis are a way to open up our uh, minds to something new and different. And so to me, uh, I'll say this last thing before I go over. My, I'm already over my time, I see. And Tim and Carrie are just so nice. They're just like, okay, Tori's over her time. <laughs> I can't say one last thing. I'd like us to practice with these paramis by learning how to balance their presence and their absence, to learn how to see when they're with us and when they're not, and use that as a gauge to help us watch our resistance. Okay, Tim. <laughs> All right, thank you, Tori. So paramis, these perfections. So we have some nice postcards that Alice and Cheryl helped develop. They're over on the, um, yep, he's holding them up over by the, the desk there. Online, if you go to the, what's it called, Cheryl or Cheryl? Resource page. Resource page, or it's on the daily, it's yearly. The, uh, classes and so classes and programs, yearly theme. So there's this really nice, you made that one, didn't you? Well, yes. So you guys, both of you? Yes. So it has a nice list of all the paramis. Also has some nice references. There's a, a nice book by uh, John Chichito that you can, can read as kind of an, a way to augment um, the teachings. And so take a look at that. 
And this here, you can also look, if you look at the events under each calendar, like for the um, for Monday night, you can see the teaching schedule. So Carrie is going to be teaching a lot more at Sims, so we'll be happy to hear her voice, and Tori will be teaching, and I'll be teaching also, so you can see which nights we're covering, and also which, which parami. So the first um, and last month of the year, January and December, we'll do an overview of the paramis, and then we'll go through each one of them, step by step. And the paramis, we can look at them lots of different ways, and that'll also be the teaching theme for Sundays and also Thursdays, right? Yep. Yep, and under 40, yep. So it can have a cohesiveness throughout all of Sims, all the different offerings that we do. So there's different ways we can explore the paramis, and this just one way that kind of came to us as I was reflecting is that we can see how one needs leads to another one. So the first one is generosity. So at generosity, we start to have an openness of our heart. We start to care for others. And that naturally starts to move toward non-harm, which leads to, to ethics, to morality, or to virtue. We had a little uh, <laughs> argument about what we're to use for that one, sila. And this is really non-harm. Right? So we start to cool down our greed, our hatred, our delusion, how that expresses outward. And we start to see those impulses more clearly. Right? That starts to lead to a quality of renunciation. We start to renounce, uh, letting go of greed and hatred and delusion, how it shows up. Now as that, the noise that those generate starts to quiet down in us, we start to have greater clarity. We start to perceive more fully how things are. And then from that, wisdom starts to grow. The next parami. Wisdom we can define many ways, but one is understanding the actual nature of suffering and the freedom from that suffering. The actual nature of how things actually are. We start to see that it leads to a quality of urgency, a quality of motivation, which is the next parami of energy, the energy to practice. We start to apply dharma in our lives. How do we actually integrate all these different relationships and actions we do? And then wisdom starts to come in with that energy because urgency sometimes has a level of tension. So it starts to bring this next element of patience, this patience of timelessness, the sense of letting things unfold at their own pace, their own rate. We start to relax our control, our agenda. And the relationship to reality starts to become more and more important. How, think, how is the moment actually is? What is the actual moment? What's actually here? Which starts to lead to truthlessness, or truthfulness, I should say. Speaking what is true becomes more and more essential. Knowing what is true in ourselves, that deep acknowledgement of what's actually present in this heart, in this body. And then how to express that truth, how to actually have it go out into the world aligning our actions. So there's this movement, movement then into alignment of inner truth into outward action, which leads to resolution, to resolution, this deep commitment, which is related to renunciation and energy. It's this heart's alignment with our dharma, with awakening, with ethics, which then leads to loving kindness, to this quality of metta, this warmth of heart, that goes out to all beings, regardless of our preferences or liking or disliking. It transcends differences and distinctions. And this is supported by the last parami of equanimity, this quality being equally near to all things. And so these 10 paramis, we can look at them 
one at a time. We can look at them from how do we um, express them, how do we see the opposite of them, how do we start to really engage them. We can also see how they start to become this full package. Because it's said that this is what the Buddha, the perfections is what he did in previous lifetimes, is he worked on all these paramis to the point that there was a, a level of perfection in them that provided this foundation for his awakening. So may that be true for all of us. Thank you. <laughs> Did you just do a 10-minute review of all the paramis? <laughs> That's impressive, Tim. I've never... It was less than done. That was impressive. Yeah, it's going to be a year of clip notes on my talks. Five minute talk and we're done. That was impressive. So I uh, love the paramis. Um, so I don't know if you could hear, but in Tim's description, it's a, a beautiful list of 10 qualities and to some degree they are they're all mutually reinforcing like so many of the lists they support each other they bring uh, forward the best like pairing kindness and resolve together uh, for several years has been my intention at the beginning of the year uh, so they pair beautifully together um, but I also like to think of them as um, these are our inherent strengths and capacities of mind that all human beings share. So often we have very intricate descriptions and labels for all of our neuroses. Have you noticed? <laughs> right? We can detail them at length. Um, but sometimes, uh, and some of the Buddhist maps are so helpful at giving us maps for what it looks like when the mind and heart are functioning well. What does it look like when a human heart and mind are functioning well? We could call this awakening, or we could call this a very healthy, well human heart. It looks like this person is naturally uh, generous, kind, uh, has balanced energy, um, many of these qualities that are the paramis. But I like to think of them that way as inherent strengths that we all have, um, but also ones that can be developed that enable our minds to let go. So I think Tim or Twery talked about them as kind of supports for uh, letting go, right? They're ripeners for awakening. So they helped ripen the Buddha so that when he did sit down and practice, uh, all of these qualities, these um, traits had been kind of working their way on him, um, supposedly through lifetimes. So that when he sat down, uh, there was this readiness to let go. So I think of the paramis as um, a beautiful map for our inherent 
strengths and capacities um, that enable the mind to let go, help support letting go. Um, they can also be developed, right? And that's what we do when we undertake them as a practice. They can be developed. Um, it's not, uh, for many of us, for all of us, this is not immediate. So Ajahn Suchito in the book that um, Tim and Twery mentioned, uh, the title is Parami, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. So there's this beautiful analogy in there in working with the floods of our conditioning, the momentum of our conditioning. And so we take up this you know, contemplating inquiry practice around generosity or kindness or wisdom or resolve. And uh, for a month, we practice, or however long, uh, bearing the quality in mind and then being willing to step into that uh, flood. You know, it's not all smooth sailing. I don't know if anyone's noticed, <laughs> but uh, we get to experience uh, everything that pushes against that quality, right? So uh, everything that um, is the opposite of that quality. And that's part of the practice. That's like stepping into the flood. Um, but the, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but the etymology of the word parami means um, furthering, right? So it helps, um, it helps us cross, um, sometimes it's said to the other shore of that flood, right? So, uh, Um, in one sense, all of these strengths and capacities are already here, right? We can be awake in this moment, just as it is. And these capacities also help ripen us, help, help uh, uh, further us, bring us to what's called the other, the other shore. Not a distinct, separate place from where we are now, uh, but when these qualities are at their fullness, um, that is what an awakened, it's the expression of awakening. Yeah. So I find it a very inspiring and very, uh, very worthwhile practice undertaking, especially in uh, the middle of busy urban life, plenty of floods, to practice with, yeah. So. so I'd just like to wrap up with a few final words um, talking about Donna and Carrie will talk about some appreciation for volunteers and Tori talking about volunteering. So Donna is is actually this, this uh, next month's topic is around this, the quality of, of generosity but also talking about it in terms of support for Sims and for the teachers. You know, we really, we don't have a, um, a price tag that we put to these evenings and to our teaching, but there's a suggested donation to help support Sims and teachers rely on whatever you're willing to, to offer. 
So this is, as many of us know, is this an honoring of this 2,600-year-old tradition, going back to the time of the Buddha, that as a monastic, he would simply receive literally the food that fed him for each day, the clothing that would uh, keep him covered from the elements, medicine, shelter. And each day he would have to basically beg for that. And in those cultures, it was really considered a good thing to give to support a monastic. And, you know, in return, they realized they were devoting their life to practicing and sharing the Dharma. So when we came here to the, the West, we wanted to honor that. The original Western teachers like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and others wanted to honor that 2,600-year-old tradition and to offer the teachings in that, that Dana basis. So that's why at Sims we have these two baskets that when you come in, you, know, you can offer some money to Sims, you can offer some money to the teachers, and how much you offer is really up to you. You know, some people have, you know, moderate means, others have much means, and you just offer based on, on what works for you. I often think back to those, those early days that a villager without much means might offer just a few grains of rice to help feed one monk or one nun while another person who had more affluence might offer a lot more to kind of compensate, to kind of fill out the, the bowl of food for the, the community. And so it's the same thing that works today, that some people give a little, some people give a lot, but there's really no amount, it's really, it's up to you completely how much you offer. And we do rely upon your, your generosity. It's uh, Tori's prime, it's your only livelihood, and pretty much, is it your only livelihood? Mostly, kind of. Partnered. She's partnered. She's got partners. I have I have other sources of income, but we do really rely on it. And Sims is um, basically our expenses right now are basically breaking even to how much Donna comes in. So reflecting on that, that I think we can all stand to have an ongoing relationship to Donna. You know, both supporting our organization, both Sims and other organizations across the country and the world and teachers that come in through Sims and other, other places. Just consider how can I give back? How can I offer that quality of support? And luckily in this modern age, we have also have Venmo and Zelle and PayPal and other options and online options on the, on the website. So thank you for your generosity for this last year and this coming year from behalf of Seattle Insight and behalf of all the teachers. I just wanted to take a moment and um, Donna takes many forms, not just monetary. So there have been many people um, who've been contributing uh, their effort, their talent, their time um, in a sustained ongoing way that has helped um, Seattle Insight continue to be able to offer. So there are board members, there are people who are on the design committee and the remodeling who have uh, kind of tended to this process of remodeling. And uh, I don't know how much uh, people are aware of, of how, how um, committed and devoted people are who are who have kind of shepherded this process along, but 
anyone who's ever tried to remodel anything, um, you know what it takes. And so there have been groups of people who have um, been a part of that on a very day-to-day way that will, um, that I feel a lot of deep uh, appreciation for. So just wanted to take a moment and... Um, all, all of them. Do you, do, you, do you want to name specific people? Sure. Okay, sure. No, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> so Tim has Tim has specific names. I know many, but I didn't want to uh, well, forget partic- anybody. Yeah, the particular yeah. design committee. Um, there's a couple people who've spent a tremendous amount of hours, and that's Barbara and Ilwine, and also Deb Savesky. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dev spent, you know, really a lot of hours behind the scenes with meetings and trying to navigate. And does anyone, everyone know what the, that we're doing a remodel? Does anyone not know? So right below our feet is where the new space is going to be. So hopefully sometime soon. <laughs> Hopefully next month sometime we'll be able to go down there. So it's going to be a really nice space. It's been really well thought out. So Deb and Barbara have really been, you know, really foundational pieces to that. Khalid, who is also on the board, has been very involved with it. Um, Iris is also part of the design committee and helped to to really flesh out the, the initial ideas and continues to add her input. Did I forget anybody else, Deb, for the core group of you? That's the core group. So we owe a lot of gratitude to them and then all the other support that's gone in around that. So I'm going to close us out with one last little piece. I want to talk about volunteering. And um, um, I don't think Sims, we haven't, been in a the only time we ever were in a like solid place was when we were in Soto and when we went to Soto we had our own kind of little space but even that space was limited to just uh, in the evenings because uh, they used a parking lot for people who worked in the building during the weekdays and this space that we are remodeling below us now it'll be ours 24 hours a day so there's all this potential of what uh, we could actually bring um, to Seattle Insight. And it takes people's commitment to come and get involved. But the thing about getting involved in an organization like a meditation group is that uh, usually we have ongoing sits. That's what we have, ongoing practice periods, ongoing ways for people to practice. And the commitment that you actually make to volunteer and support is relatively simple. It means on the day you're coming to sit, you agree to do something. Something like, you know, the chairs may be already set up, but it might be you're a greeter and you come a little bit earlier than you normally would and you greet people and say hi and help orient people who are new and um, and help close out uh, the Donna and, you know, answer some questions about how people can engage at the end. 
and that's it. And so there's a way in which Seattle Insight has been a volunteer organization for as long as I can remember. I've been with the organization since 20, uh, 2001, so 2001. And then it, it started uh, about 10 or so years before then. And so th it's always been people volunteering. So what we have now is only because people were willing to volunteer. And I can still remember volunteering to be uh, on the sound, there's a committee of people on the sound committee. And, and like here, where you come and set things up, we were at St. Mark's and I would come and set things up and I have no tech capacity at all. And I was so grateful that they had little instruction cards and that it said yellow thing pushes into the yellow spot. And that, that's the way I would do it. So it was so, it was, it was like that people had thought out, how can you help make something uh, user-friendly for people that are volunteering? So it's not about volunteering because you have all this capacity. It really is about spending as small amount of time, a little extra time that helps support the organization. And there's enough of us, and it always has been with Sims, that you don't have to do it constantly. But when people don't volunteer, the work still has to be done. And it's usually done by just a small handful of people and they are overtaxed. So I, I want us to begin to, uh, it's, it's really gonna be important when we move downstairs, but to begin to see that if I had to carry the teachings of Seattle Insight by myself, it would be a heavy load to carry. But carrying it with Tim, carrying it with um, Carrie, carrying it with all the LDLs we have, and you think about all the people that teach on Thursdays and Sundays, um, even on the Wednesdays on Carrie's group, there's just a vast amount of people that help hold the teachings, all of us together. And by doing that, our time, my actual teaching time is less and I can really stay engaged. And so this is, this is what I wanna encourage you to think about. It may be that you are online, you can't even come here. Many people that are online with Sims don't even live in Seattle, don't even live around here. And so your effort or your support might be helping out with admin stuff a little bit each month and, um, there's just a lot of variety of things that people can get involved with. And I wanna encourage everyone to think about Sims as being your, it's your sacred place. It's not ours to present to you, it's really yours. And the more we think of it as ours, the more we will, um, the community effect of it will remain. So I'll leave you with this last little um, quote. Oh yes, there's a sign-up sheet on the table uh, if you'd like to sign up and have someone contact you about some things you could do. And just check it out and see what you could offer. Maybe you can offer a little, maybe a lot. Just see. So I'll leave you with this uh, reflection on the Dhamma from Ian McCrory. 
Um, he says there are these two monks and they're walking this journey together. And one monk said, I really like walking alone. And the other monk uh, said to his companion, I like walking with you too. <laughs> and there's a way that each of us, because this is a practice built on meditation, there's a way that everyone in this room, everyone online, all of us as practitioners are walking this path alone by ourselves in our own practice, in our own relationship. And at the same time, we very much practice together in Sangha as a group. And that interconnection, it really helps our practice together. So this is, this is what we're cultivating here at Seattle Insight, this sense of you being able to come and practice quietly by yourself and to be a part of a Sangha that helps strengthen your practice. So thank you all for being here. I hope to see you all throughout the year. We are very excited in all the various ways that we teach. Uh, we pre just appreciate both those of you that come online because we need that uh, so that in case someone can't come, they know they can still uh, be with us uh, online. And um, those of you that came in person, thank you so much. So have a good evening. Bye. <laughs>